Well, welcome to my office on this rainy Friday. I'm Bruce Stabbert. More than 10 years ago here at FBC in Tacoma, FBC, if you don't know it, is Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, we were studying the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. And right away, we were knee-deep in a controversial doctrine that not everybody was comfortable with. I preached a message that I called The Gorilla in the Room, and the gorilla was predestination. It's a subject that many church people try to ignore, never talk about it. Uh, it's unpleasant for, for many people. But still, if you're in Ephesians 1, you can't help but run into the idea that salvation seems to be not primarily, primarily about us, but about God from beginning to end. And, and here's how it goes. I'm reading, um, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And I'm jumping down to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, when you read that, um, you come up with this word predestination more than once. Now, I want to revisit that sermon that I did 10 years ago and kind of do it today because we didn't, uh, we didn't uh, video it at that time. And, and I think this needs to be available for people that are interested in questions like this. Now, here's something that might surprise you, but I want to insist that all Christians who claim to get their beliefs from the Bible believe in divine election. You know, go to anyone who respects the Bible and ask, do you believe in election? And they should have to say, yes, because it's right here in the Bible. Not just here in Ephesians, it's in the Gospels, and it's in Acts and many of the other letters. It's even in Revelation. Now, the person you ask might actually say, no, I've never believed in election, because they think you're asking whether they believe in what is usually called unconditional election. They may not know that's what it's called, but what they object to is the idea that God would choose some people, but not all people, to receive salvation based only on his own sovereignty and apart from any foreseen response of faith or obedience on their part. That, that kind of election they can't sign on to. The kind of election that they might agree to is what could be called conditional election. And it goes something like this. That God's choice of certain individuals before the foundation of the world, as we've just read about in Ephesians 1, was based on God's ability to look forward and know which people would actually choose to believe in Christ. God then determined to save them because he knows in advance that they will say yes to the gospel of their own free will. But the brand of election where the choice is completely God's, and he then makes all the moves necessary to bring someone to faith while passing over the rest of mankind, that kind of election or predestination is abhorrent to many people. Um, take John Wesley. Uh, born in 1703, lived till 1791. That's most of a whole century. He was the founder of Methodism. He's an example of someone who may feel like you do. He revealed all his heart when he said, The grace or love of God whence comes our salvation is free in all and free for all. To this, some answered, No, 
It is free only for those whom God has ordained to life, and they are but a little flock. The greater part of mankind God has ordained to death, and it is not free for them. Them God hates. Therefore, before they were born, decreed they should die eternally, and this was his good pleasure. In a published sermon called Free Grace, which he preached in 1740, John Wesley claimed uh, a few things. Number one, if unconditional election is true, then it is vain to preach because people will be saved whether you do it or not. He claimed, secondly, that this doctrine destroys the motive to live a holy life, since people will be saved whether they live one way or another, so God has decreed. Wesley claimed, third, that the doctrine of unconditional election robs believers of all the happiness and comfort of Christianity. And how so? Well, by plaguing us with the concept that, these are his words, thousands and millions of men without any preceding offense or fault of theirs were unchangeably doomed to everlasting burnings. Wesley claimed, four, that this doctrine, which he hated, has the tendency to overthrow the whole Christian revelation. He said, it is a doctrine full of blasphemy, for it cannot be denied that he, Jesus, everywhere speaks as if he was willing that all men should be saved. Therefore, to say he was not willing that all men should be saved is to represent him as a mere hypocrite and dissembler. It overturns both his justice mercy, and truth. Yea, it represents the most holy God as worse than the devil, as both more false, more cruel, and more unjust. This is the blasphemy clearly contained in the horrible decree of predestination. And here I fix my foot. On this I join issue with every asserter of it. I abhor the doctrine of predestination. Wow. Well, there are days when I can relate to some of those feelings. I mean, to think that God would offer a salvation that most people have no ability to receive, that doesn't seem quite right. doesn't seem fair on its face to choose some and not choose others. Something as long-lasting as eternal bliss or torment should be left open to each person to decide. Give everyone an equal chance. If they say no, well, then they face their own music. They have only themselves to blame. This seems consistent with the love of God, who would not act out of favoritism, but would freely invite and enable everyone to come to him if they will. More than this, don't we have the sense that God would not be interested in followers who are compelled to love him? Isn't the whole idea of love that it must be freely offered, not compelled? Why would God want to drag people to heaven who don't want to be there? Isn't free choice necessary if God is going to be loved by people whom he asked to love him with all their hearts? And don't we know from Scripture that God is not willing for any to perish? 2 Peter 3.9 Doesn't he, quote, desire all men to be saved? 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4 But since we know from the Bible that not everyone will be saved, then God's will, evidently, God's will in the matter must not be the determining factor. Therefore, we must take seriously the idea put forward by Paul in Romans that God's predestination is, quote, according to foreknowledge. Uh, Romans 8.29. It's conditioned by whether people choose to believe, exercising their own free will. God simply looks ahead and ratifies that choice of faith with his decree to save all who believe. Now, what I've just described is common thinking in many parts of Christ's church. If you happen to agree with this, you are in good company with many famous saints of the past, of the present, when we discuss this doctrine, we should probably try to avoid the labels and nasty epithets used by past warriors who branded each other heretics and blasphemers. We are, did I say that right? Blasphemers. 
We are not going to fight over this at FBC. We never have. We don't like using labels, pushing systems of theology that are held as a grid over every scripture before the scripture is even allowed to speak with its own voice. You might have heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's a good model of a man who tried to avoid using systems to make the Bible say what he needed it to. He said, It has been my earnest endeavor ever since I have preached. I thought of doing this with an English accent, but it sounds very phony. It has been my earnest endeavor ever since I have preached the word, never to keep back a single doctrine, which I believe to be taught of God. It is time that we have done with the old and rusty systems that have so long curbed the freeness of religious speech. The Arminian trembles to go an inch beyond Arminius or Wesley. And many a Calvinist refers to John Gill or John Calvin as the ultimate authority. It is time that the systems were broken up and that there was sufficient grace in our hearts to believe everything taught in God's word, whether it was taught by either of these men or not. If God teaches it, it's enough. If it is not in the word, away with it. Away with it. But if it be in the word, agreeable or disagreeable, systematic or disorderly, I believe it. Well, right on, Charles. Here, here, they would say in England. But nevertheless, you have, you have your thoughts and opinions on these matters, maybe some well-studied convictions. I know some of you who do, and, and you should. But look, if someone disagrees with you, they're more likely to consider your viewpoint and learn something from it if you share what you believe with gentleness and understanding. James talked about this in James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. We should remind ourselves that we don't come to this subject as if it's a new thing. Predestination has been debated from every conceivable angle, and we enter this debate long after the dust is basically settled. The rich history and literature of this debate is a treasure for us to ponder. During the first three centuries of the church, their early fathers didn't touch on this question much. The first large contribution to this debate was made by Augustine of Hippo around, around AD 400. He emphasized the sovereign grace of God and salvation. In the Middle Ages, Anselm and Aquinas mostly went along with Augustine, seeing predestination as God's right to control all things by his own purpose and power. Prior to the Reformation, Wycliffe and Huss set forth strong views of predestination. The Reformation carried forward their teachings, whether Luther or Calvin, Zwingli, uh, Melanchthon or Knox. Actually, Melanchthon later modified his views and swayed the Lutheran church to repudiate Luther's strong teachings that appeared in his classic works, The Bondage of the Will and his great commentary on Romans. The Puritans in England, as well as the Covenanters in Scotland, the Huguenots in France, all of these pushed forward a rigorous defense of unconditional election and then carried it to the New World. The first studied opponent of this doctrine was the Dutch theologian Jacob Arminius, uh, 1560, he was born, died in 1609. He was a disciple of Beza, who had studied under Calvin. His ideas were eventually summarized under the five points of Arminius. These were called the Remonstrant Articles. So let me lay these out for us briefly. The first is, I'm going to call it free will, but it's that sinful man cannot come to faith without God's help, which God gives to all. So, they believe in human depravity, but the emphasis is on the freedom of man's will to choose to love God and accept the gospel. And God does not interfere with this freedom. So that's why I call this free will. Now, the Arminian on the street never heard of number one, not in this way, and does not factor in God's essential help. 
the average free will person thinks man already has enough ability to make a decision about the gospel. Here's number two, that the divine decree to save man is, or men is, and women, of course, is, is conditional, not unconditional, based on foreseen faith, so conditional election. The third one is that the atonement of the cross was universal in intention, yet to be accessed only by those who believe. So they would call that unlimited atonement. Christ died for everybody, making it possible for all to be saved if they will believe. Number four, that when God helps men come to faith, they can resist him of their own will. So uh, we could call that resistible grace in contrast to what we'll have from the Calvinist side. And then number five, that believers can resist sin, but are not beyond the possibility of falling from grace. So although I must add that many who hold to the other points of Arminianism nevertheless believe that once we are saved, we will always be saved. So there's variation on that among Arminians. Now, this basic rundown was later adopted by John Wesley and the Methodists, by some Baptists, by most groups of the holiness or Pentecostal traditions, such as Nazarenes. Well-known evangelists like Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham have walked in this tradition. It has always been appealing to Americans, where we believe in one man, one vote. It's not easy for us to go to the Bible and discover something Calvinistic, one God, one vote. We like our democracy. No taxation without representation. And we're not that fond of arranged marriages either. You might guess that the other side took issue with each of these points and put forward their own slate of contrasting doctrines. This happened at the Synod of Dort, uh, 1618-19, became known as the famous or infamous Five Points of Calvinism, following the acrostic tulip, which apparently came out of Holland. First is total depravity or inability. So let me give you a rundown of each of these rather quickly, and because we'll kind of explore these a little bit later. Because of the fall, this is total depravity. Because of the fall, man is unable of himself to believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It's in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed he cannot, choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes a miracle of regeneration by which the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. So that's number one. Number two is unconditional election. God chose certain individuals before the foundation of the world. This rested solely in his own sovereign will. It wasn't based on some uh, foreseen response of obedience on the part of those chosen, such as having some kind of faith or repentance. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. The third is limited atonement, or uh, many call it particular redemption. Christ's redeeming work on the cross was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. His death was substitutionary. He endured the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. Some Calvinists, because of certain difficult verses, disagree on this point, preferring to emphasize the vast sufficiency of Christ's death and certain common benefits that accrue to all humans, though short of saving all. Some use the phrase, sufficient for all, efficient for the elect. 
But the net result is not different, since only those who are chosen will ever believe in Christ's death to save them. The fourth point of TULIP is irresistible or effectious grace. In addition to the outward general call to salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect only a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. You know the verse, many are called, that would be preaching the gospel to people, but he says few are chosen. This internal call can't be rejected. It always results in conversion. By means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. The Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly and gladly to Christ. God's grace, therefore, is invincible. It never fails to result in the salvation of those to whom it is extended. And then the fifth one is the, for the P part of TULIP is the perseverance of the saints. All who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, given faith by the Spirit, are eternally saved. They are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God and thus persevere to the end. Some call this eternal security. Now that we've had this outline of doctrines, I guess what I'd like to do is something I don't see too often in theological controversies. What you usually see is that opponents on both sides are tempted to define things so that the distinctive points of their view are highlighted, especially their strong points. But when we start doing that, if we're not careful, we tend to define the other view with its most extreme and ugly face, usually flagging its weakest points. We may describe one of these points according to what we see its logical and evil outcome would be, a description the opponent would never sign on for in that sort of language. We end up drawing a caricature on the other side that would they would not recognize or espouse as their own view. We subconsciously, well, say it that way, let's be kind to ourselves and not call it mean or dishonest, but just an innocent quirk of those who like to be right, like you do and I do, we subconsciously erect a straw man that will be easier to knock over. It will make us look like the only guy in the room with half a brain. All the arguments on our side are so obvious and convincing that the other side should be ashamed of their shoddy thinking, their lack of scholarship, their lack of discernment. All the obvious verses on the subject line up on our side of the sheet. Believe me, I've been in theological debates where both sides were of the opinion that the simplest naive child would have gotten the right answer. Right meaning, of course, would have agreed with us. The effect is to demean the other side, if not demonize them, as having little heart for God, little respect for the Bible, and a little chance, and very little chance of having a good seat in heaven, if any seat at all. Today, I don't want to fall into anything like that. I want to take enough time to help us understand the strengths and the sore spots of each view. I won't pretend I'm equally enamored with both, both viewpoints, as you'll be able to tell, but I have respect for two things. I respect the complexities of theology, and I have to assume that controversies that last for centuries and don't go away are there because the subject is not a slam dunk for Bible students. There's a lot of nuance, and both sides will have problem verses that should not be too quickly shoved aside or explained away. In this case, both sides have good points the other doesn't have. And here's the other thing I respect. I respect the heart and reputations of those who have faithfully stood on opposite hills on this issue, because so many Calvinists and Arminians, well as vast numbers of others that are, prefer no label, are people of integrity, of piety, and humility. Yeah, there have been a few lug nets on both sides too, but I counted a privilege to hear good people from both sides speak their minds, knowing 
They have no intention but to be honest with the scriptures and true to the Lord in this gospel and, of course, protective of God's church. Now, please join with me in honoring our teachers, both living and dead, by refusing to vilify any of them and by giving a good listen, even to those whom we may finally conclude are dead wrong. I applaud the sentiments, the sentiments of John Wesley. He was 67 years old at the time, just a young man, who was asked by a reporter if he expected to see his recently deceased friend, Calvinist preacher and rival, George Whitfield, in heaven. Are you going to see him in heaven? And he said, no. Now realize that these men had exchanged hard, even harsh words on our subject of predestination. When asked to expand, Wesley said, well, I say no because from all I know of George Whitfield, he will be too close to the throne for me to see him from where I'll be standing. Now I'm going to list some strengths and some unfair arguments used by both views. Maybe I can clear the air a little, maybe not. You know, stick with me. If you're an Arminian and I don't do too well, you can blame me for how this turns out. If you're a Calvinist, blame God. All right, so we're going to start with strengths of the Arminian position. And the first is going to have to do with evangelism and missions. Let's start with something good that Arminians have to offer from their side of the debate, and that is a fervency for evangelism and for missions. We need to witness. It's our commission. And it's rather obvious that when you believe every person has the decisive choice in his salvation, that you will do all you can to take the gospel to every creature and implore them to choose Christ. Unfortunately, as you heard Wesley say earlier, there is a belief among Arminians that Calvinists have no reason at all to be zealous to preach the gospel, since God's got the whole thing in his pocket. This is where the straw man shows up. The Armenian, did I say straw man? Straw man. This is where the straw man shows up. The Arminian projects that a Calvinist thinks that God is going to save people whether anyone goes to them or not. But to be honest, that's not a fair accusation of those who believe in unconditional election. How about William Carey, the father of modern missions and a thoroughgoing Calvinist? It was certainly news to evangelist George Whitfield when he read what Wesley said about this. George Whitfield, a committed predestinarian, had preached to thousands, multiplied thousands, who with untold conversions while giving himself to tireless preaching in England and America, he would preach in a field with tens of thousands of people listening. He once said, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. His answer in a published letter to Wesley was simply that the same God who appoints salvation has also ordained the preaching of the word as the means to faith. It's the gospel, not election, that is the power of God for salvation, whether preached by an Arminian or a Calvinist. Paul said, how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Romans 10. And since no preacher knows who is elect or not, then the preaching goes out to all equally. You can't ask people to pull up their sleeve to see if there's a little E tattooed on their shoulder. Whitfield goes on to say that what motivates a Calvinist is that the Spirit moves along with the Word and actually performs a miracle of regeneration in the hearts of those ordained to eternal life. Or as Luke put it in Acts, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Paul regarded election as a big motivator to evangelize, even to take on suffering in the process. These are all things that Whitfield brought up. 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure, Paul said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with its eternal glory. God told Paul to stay in Corinth, a difficult place. Why? Well, I have, present tense, I have many people in this city, even before the evangelism took place. This is Acts 18. So Paul stayed there a year and a half, teaching the gospel so that those elect people could come to Christ. 
He didn't say, well, God, you chose them. You can save them without any help from me. So what I'm saying to the Arminian is that your strong point does not give you a license to accuse the other side of lacking that point entirely. Here's the second thing. Another strong point of Arminians is their insistence that people are responsible. There's no harking back to God's secret counsels and putting the blame on God. People have a free will and they're responsible for how they use it or abuse it. Their destiny is in their own hand. So no fatalism here. But now watch what happens when Arminians start talking about Calvinists. They accuse Calvinist types of holding that people are essentially robots and that if unconditional election is true, then people can't reasonably be held responsible for what they can't help from doing or from rejecting some offer that was never meant for them in the first place. And yet, no Calvinist I know of denies that people are responsible, even if that seems logically inconsistent to an Arminian. It is sort of a mystery, of course. Well, we should talk a little bit about free will. The classical Arminian wants to say that even though fallen sinful people can't respond to the gospel, God graciously helps all who hear the gospel so that they can freely choose either for or against Christ. A Calvinist also believes that no sinner has the ability to choose God, but that if God decides to help the sinner choose, then the sinner is obviously elect and will always say yes to God. Now remember irresistible grace. God does not owe this help to everyone who hears. In fact, not to anyone who hears. It's pure grace. Now the Calvinist insists that it doesn't follow that a person lost in sin has no power of will and so bears no accountability for his choices. He has a will. But his will is not neutral. It is in bondage, so that whatever choice a sinner makes is always an expression of his nature, his fallen nature. A man freely chooses in line with his fallen desires, and he's accountable for every choice. And by the way, it will be the same when we get to heaven. Our nature then will be holy, and so we will be bound to make choices that flow from that nature. We will be unable to sin, and not one of us will complain that we have lost our free will. It is the same with God himself. He is, he is not free to sin, but of all the people that can ever be, he has the most free will. He can only do, however, what his nature demands. At issue here is an honest difference between Arminians and Calvinists as to how lost we are. It's the doctrine of depravity. Well, the Calvinists insist that we are dead in sins and can never make a good choice until God regenerates our spirit. The classical Arminian says something similar about how dead we are, but then he has God coming on the scene and giving dead men the power to choose. The only thing is that God gives them the option to say no, and there's the difference. Wayne Grudem gives a helpful summary of this difference. He says the difference, quote, can be seen in the way they answer a very simple question. Given the fact that some people will choose to accept Christ and some people will not, the question is, what makes people differ? If our answer is that it's ultimately based on something God does, namely his sovereign election of those who would be saved, then we see that salvation at its most foundational level is based on grace alone. On the other hand, if we answer that the ultimate difference between those who are saved and those who are not is because of something in man that is a tendency or disposition to believe or not believe, then salvation ultimately depends on a combination of grace plus human ability. Well, let's go to a third thing. Uh, the Armenian tradition is strong in calling people to live righteously. People need to live holy lives. Some of the old holiness preachers were instrumental in getting whole towns to repent and burn up their vices and run to Christ in repentance. In fact, I was in Friday Harbor 
not long ago where I went to the old jail that they had at the museum. And in it, it talks about when Billy Sunday came to Friday Harbor on the San Juan Islands and uh, preached about the evils of drink. And they had so many bootleggers in jail, they didn't have room for them. Well, everybody was dumping out their liquor. Well, Wesley turns and accuses Whitfield types of removing the motivation for living a holy life. And this is the straw man in this case. And how does Whitfield answer this? Well, he just wonders how in the world the doctrine of election would ever cause anyone to regard holiness as a small thing. Doesn't Paul say here in Ephesians that we were chosen so we could be and would be holy and blameless? The very mark of God's electing hand is to place within each new creation a desire to live a holy life out of gratitude for God's grace and for the purpose of pleasing the God who called and because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, who as holy is calling us to holiness constantly. Is it not commanded that those who think themselves chosen should regularly examine themselves to make their calling and election sure? Uh, 2 Peter 1. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Wesley accuses those who hold to election of being cold and proud. But Whitfield himself is an example well known to Wesley of a Calvinist fervent for God, full of humility and virtue. Whitfield is reported to have said once, I am burning with a fever, and I have a violent cold, but Christ's presence makes me smile at pain, and the fire of his love burns up all fevers whatsoever. Whitfield insists that those who believe in unconditional election have every reason to be humble and kind and grateful, because they know God saved them by an act of undeserved love. It also tells them that God has chosen, as well, people who now might appear to be far off and abandoned, and so you're filled with love even for those. Whitfield insists that Wesley be honest and admit that there are plenty of Arminians who also are lacking in meekness and love and basic virtues. He insists that a doctrine cannot be judged solely on the basis of the life of its adherents. And so he reminds Wesley of Colossians 3, 12 and 13, which calls on God's people to be merciful, humble, and forgiving based on the fact that they are, quote, the elect of God, holy and beloved. A fourth strong point of Arminianism is that it preaches the gospel to all, with full confidence that anyone who wants to can believe it and receive it. Now, when you tell someone that they must turn to Christ and reject their idols, you have no reservation at the back of your mind as to whether this person can actually do this, because they might not be chosen. But then the Arminian is tempted to turn and accuse, as Wesley does, that the Calvinist is hypocritical, in fact, makes a hypocrite out of Jesus when he preaches that whoever, whosoever will may come, when the Calvinist believes that most people have never been chosen and can't come because God won't regenerate them. He also accuses the Calvinist of believing that God hated and condemned people to burn to hell or in hell without any preceding offense or fault of theirs that God decreed the non-elect to die eternally, and this was God's good pleasure, as if God got a big kick out of it. All of this gets to a basic objection voiced by Arminians, and that is that Calvinists have a God who is arbitrary. Uh, He's unfair. He's unloving. He's, in fact, cruel. Whitefield, Whitefield answers this swiftly, that God's judgment of sinners is not based on some arbitrary choice. Like God is thumbing his way through the phone book, putting check marks by names he's going to send to hell. No, his judgment is based on their sins. So God puts a mark by every name, guilty and condemned. In fact, all men, both elect and non-elect, were under God's burning wrath 
There wasn't a group that God loved and a group that he hated. We were all born children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2.2. So now, if it's absolute fairness you insist on, then everyone dies and goes to hell. That would be what justice demands. If God wants to show mercy on some, or all, or let's say none, that is a matter of God's freedom. It's not an issue of fairness. If he chooses to save some but not others, he has withheld nothing that was deserved from those who are passed over. They already deserve God's wrath, even as much as they elect. If someone is in hell, they can thank themselves. If they end up in heaven, they can thank God. So look, when you're guilty, you, you don't want to plead to the, just, to the judge for justice. You want to plead for mercy. And God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Paul says God is the, quote, Savior of all men, 1 Timothy 4.10. Well, how would he be the Savior of all men? Because not all are saved. Well, it means that he, he gives men life and delays his judgment for a time so that some pleasures of earth might be enjoyed even by the rank of sinners. God sends rain on the just and the unjust, but not one of us deserves even to draw a single breath. And yet God is slow to judge. We are told that God, quote, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33.11. What we do know is that God delights to magnify his justice as well as his mercy. The confounding thing is not that God doesn't choose everyone. The amazing thing is that he chooses anyone, that he would choose me. That's why we call it amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Now, both viewpoints place something higher than the saving of the most people possible. The Arminian puts the sacrosanct will of men ahead of saving as many as possible. Thus, God shows respect to those who refuse him. The Calvinist puts the glory of God ahead of saving as many as possible. We're told in Romans 9 that the punishment of the wicked is one way God's full nature is glorified. You may not have thought of this, but Arminians have a problem with supposed unfairness too. For God, in their view, allows some people to grow up in Christian homes or other places where the gospel is easily accessible, while he allows others to live in cultures and remote places devoid of gospel witness. Is that fair if it all depends on free will and a level playing field? And how fair or loving is it of God to leave it completely up to immature people to make the decision that will determine their whole eternity? It's like asking a kindergartner to choose a college and nail down a major. Would you make him live with that choice? Of course not. Would you never require your children to brush their teeth because you don't want to run roughshod over their little will? Would it not have been kinder for God to acknowledge we are all foolish children who are best off if God just grabs us up off the road where we were playing, even though it is not our will to be rescued? What parent would leave it up to their daughter whether to be rescued from an oncoming truck just because she refuses to be distracted from her hopscotch? Oh, I can't violate her free will. And how much more is at stake in eternal salvation? We are way too concerned about maintaining our free will. No one will end up in heaven complaining that they didn't get an equal shot at going to hell. And yet the Calvinists insist, election does not exclude anybody from heaven who wants in. But now let's turn to the other side. Let's see what strengths Calvinism has, if any, and what straw men it can manage to prop up to make the Arminians look foolish. First of all, what does the Calvinist position have going for it? Well, they have this, a rest in God for the results of witness. A strong point for those who believe in unconditional election is that when they witness, they can trust God for the results, since it is part of God's decree. 
They don't judge a missionary preacher who has labored in the jungles with no converts that he is necessarily doing anything wrong. They don't put on each other the unnecessary pressure of thinking that it all depends on the witness to come up with the right words, the right approach, to make it more likely that someone will come to faith. They avoid a lot of the temptation to dumb down the message or to alter it somehow to make it more palatable to the listener. They remember what Paul said about someone planting, someone else watering, but God giving the increase, the actual fruit, 1 Corinthians 3.6. They have a better response to the type of situation faced by Arminians a few years ago. You may not be old enough for this, but in 1991, Jimmy Swaggart of the Assembly of God televangelist was caught in immorality. The question for the church authorities was whether to discipline him with some sort of probation, to take him off TV for a time until he could show repentance, get his life back together. I watched on TBN one night as a couple of church officials discussed this issue with Paul Crouch. And I must say I was appalled by their unanimous opinion that Swaggart should not be required to suspend his ministry even one day. But their reasoning was completely consistent with their Arminian theology. They reasoned that if Jimmy Swaggart were not allowed to preach, that millions would then fail to hear the gospel who otherwise would have, and that thousands would end up in hell who otherwise would have made it to heaven. They refused to have the blood of these people on their hands. So, there's a strong point for Calvinists who would have felt free to deal more biblically and responsibly by disciplining swagger because they could leave the harvest up to God. But now Calvinists can use this strong point and create a straw man case against the Arminian. And I've used this one myself. Basically, it goes like this. If I thought that the salvation of another person was completely a matter of his free will, with none of God's sovereignty involved, then I would feel immense pressure as a witness to convince sinners to believe. I was reading the transcript of a panel discussion on predestination, and one of the panelists said, if I were an Arminian and believed I was responsible for the eternal destiny of people, I'd get out of the ministry. I'd be a mental case. If I actually believed that people would go to hell if I didn't preach correctly, then I'd be a frenetic person running around buttonholing everybody that crossed my path, trying to make sure no one went to hell because of me. In other words, don't anyone here dare become an Arminian because it will land you in the mental hospital in a straitjacket. Well, that's not fair reasoning. I know plenty of Arminians who feel compelled to witness, but they aren't going mad. They understand that God doesn't hold them responsible to reach everybody. And they wish, they wish they witness more often, just like I do. Now, it's easy to say what it would be like if you were to adopt the other side, as Wesley does when he says that belief in the doctrine of predestination will take away all your happiness, to which Whitfield replied, but how does, how does Mr. Wesley know this, who has never believed in election? Now, it's not wrong to remind your opponents where they might be inconsistent, I mean, if you take the Arminian view seriously, it's not logical to pray for the salvation of your close friends or your relatives, because what's God going to do about it? Isn't he committed not to mess with a person's freedom? Hasn't he already done everything he is permitted to do, like arranging for the cross and sending in a preacher, and in the case of the Arminian, actually enabling that person to make a choice? But see, if you use this argument with an Arminian, he won't care about consistency. A heart of caring will always pray for God to intervene. Theology be shelved if need be. And so it's not right to suggest that if someone becomes an Arminian, they won't be allowed to pray for their lost family members anymore. Well, let me go to a second thing, a second strong point of Calvinists. Their doctrine puts the spotlight on God's grace and sovereignty. Or we could say it like this, 
the advantage is an exaltation of God and his grace as man is humbled and helped. It lifts God up high as it demotes and humbles the pride of men, which we all know personally needs a lot of humbling. It is the great strength of Calvinism that it insists our greater concern should be to cherish and protect the free will of God, not the free will of man. It's most important that God get his way, for that will always be the best of all possibilities. But at this point, the Calvinist can make a big mistake, or several. Uh, For one thing, he can get so jazzed about finally seeing the sovereignty of God that that's all he sees all over the Bible. And he can play this one string until everybody is sick of hearing it. Or worse yet, he can start accusing the Arminian of deifying man's freedom and of downplaying the glory and grace of God. Now, I'm suspicious of any doctrine that appears to lift up man at the expense of God. And Calvinism definitely has the edge here by avoiding even a hint of this. But I'm sure that Wesley and Arminius had no intention of downsizing God. Instead, I'm sure that they thought that what they regarded, that is what the Calvinists were doing, as an arbitrary use of God's power in grabbing some sinners for salvation and leaving the rest to perish, was tarnishing God. They couldn't believe in a God like that. They couldn't see how Calvinism did not diminish the love and honor of God. They were jealous for the reputation of God, and they felt the Calvinist was putting God in a horrible light. Wesley said the Calvinist was making God into something worse than the devil, that he makes God into a deceiver who invites all men to Christ, but has no intention of saving anybody but a few favorites. So if you happen to be a Calvinist, don't assume that the other guys are consciously trying to minimize God. In fact, it is probably quite the opposite. However, if someone gravitates to Arminianism because they are trying to salvage the pride of men, then I've got a problem with that. That's not a noble motive for deciding any doctrine. The Bible goes to great pains to disabuse us of our pride. So, let's not prefer a doctrine because it does not shove the dagger too deep into our inflated egos. Well, here's the third thing. This third strong point of Calvinism is that it brings assurance and comfort. Even though Wesley thought it just the opposite. Security is best gained by knowing God is the one in control of the ultimate outcome of the life you have begun. And since your salvation did not begin with your decision, then it cannot be lost. Nothing and no one, including you, can pluck yourself out of God's hand. But now the Calvinists must remember that just that, you know, that someone who believes in election can be just as much in doubt of his own salvation as any Arminian who is afraid of losing his. The Calvinist can worry if he was actually chosen. If he could know he was chosen, he would have security, but that's not easy for some people. All I'm saying is that insecurity is not a problem for just one side. It's part of the human condition, especially for certain personality types. Well, let me go to the fourth a tendency to be more exegetical. I want to close with this, what I believe is the strongest advantage of Calvinism. Calvinism answers more clearly the majority of texts on this subject. It has a tendency to be more exegetical. In contrast, the Arminian position seems to be more intuitive, appealing to how we want God to do things. As a result, it can actually be more satisfying. But when I read the Bible clearly and extensively, and I'm speaking now for myself, someone who was raised as an Arminian and who later discovered I had an Arminian dad and a Calvinist mom, when I started to read the Bible more extensively, I came up with so many texts that were difficult on my Arminian viewpoint. Now, this is not to say that Arminians don't have verses. I mean, don't make up another straw man. You know, I start with John 3.16, God so loved the world. Or 1 Timothy 4.10, Savior of all men, especially those who believe. 
1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Or the clinchers uh, that many use, 2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. But in spite of the apparent strength of those verses, I began to see that those verses were not that difficult for a Calvinist. Plus the foreknowledge verses, uh, you know, a solid study on the idea of God's knowledge and foreknowledge shows me that it had nothing to do with God looking ahead and seeing what people would decide, getting some knowledge from that. It's God knowing in a sense of loving and reaching out to. It says, in fact, not that God saw people's decisions. It says he foreknew them. The Bible never talks of our faith as the reason for our election. In fact, it says the opposite. Acts 13.48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. But how do we take something like 2 Peter 3.9. We could go to the other text, but let me just talk about that one. Well, we study the context. The simplest reading of the verse, I suppose, teaches us that no one will be damned. God wants everyone to be saved or to get saved. God wants no one to perish, everyone to reach repentance. He can arrange that. That would be universal salvation. The lake of fire then would have only bad angels in it and Satan. But look, look at the whole verse, starting with verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Notice who he's talking to. That's Peter's saved readers. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. And you could just as easily add the words of you. Any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That verse is about God delaying judgment so that all the harvest of the elect can be brought in. If God pulls the plug on history during the first century so that no one can accuse him of delaying judgment, then how many millions of his people will not even have been born yet? He is patient toward you. That's Christians. This verse ends up being, I think, one of the strongest verses in favor of God's elective grace. So I can find some responsible answers to these difficult texts. It's not... It's not so easy to sweep aside the following array of verses that favor the idea of God electing unconditionally, even though I'm aware that Arminians have their way of explaining each of these passages. But I read something like this from John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Down in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he said in verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Look at Matthew 13, verses 10 and 11. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We could read several verses from John 17, but I'm going to leave you. You can read the whole chapter, and you'll see this. Or Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, 
verifies the idea that we, how we are dead in our sins. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, get this by this part, by nature, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were no different when it came to the judgment of God. Acts thirteen forty eight, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to life, eternal life, believed. How about the book of Revelation thirteen eight, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, meaning the beast, everyone whose name was not has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Romans chapter 9. A few verses here. So then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? James 1.18 Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation, by his own will. John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans 8. Favorite chapter in the Bible. For me, along with John 17. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We could go back and read from Ephesians 1. But how about 2 Thessalonians 2.13? But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then finally, Acts 18.10, For I am with you, Paul, or God is talking to Paul, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, when I read such verses, it's hard for me to reach a better conclusion than one that leaves ultimate choice in salvation in God's court. The verse that finally was a deal-breaker for me in college was not actually about God. It was about man and his inability. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. That's the one that got me twisting the other direction. But both sides have their favorite texts. 
This is where the debate must be decided. Not in the insinuations and accusations. Well, if you believe that, then you must be like this, you inconsistent idiot. No, it must be in and from the text, not in logic and systems. Scripture comes before feelings and experience and what you've always or what you've always thought or been taught. One guy laid out a great description of both views, and then he tipped the scales at the end based on his own experience of conversion. He says there was a 180 in his soul one evening at camp when he had, he, I guess he was a teenager at the time, one evening at camp when he had no faith, and then all of a sudden he believed. Ergo, God's sovereign, irresistible grace. Now, I have to admit that for every testimony like that, you could get one on the other side to prove it was all free will. That's not how we settle on our theology. Although it's hard to argue with what someone is sure he or she experienced, I can tell you many stories of sudden and surprising conversions, such as the story of militant atheist C.S. Lewis, who said, I am, I'm dragged, kicking and screaming, the most reluctant convert in the world into the kingdom. Or how about the sudden turnaround by Paul on the road to Damascus? You know, when you're killing Christians, you're not exactly on the fast track to salvation. Well, it can look like a free decision. To us all, but maybe God is too hidden for you to see what he's doing. I'd like to illustrate this by telling how I met my wife, BJ, when we were in college. It's a humble but romantic metaphor of how God recruits us for salvation. You may never have met my wife, but, you know, show you a picture here for a second. So she's the good-looking one, and I'm the other one. And that wasn't taken yesterday, obviously. Because uh, I don't have any gray hair. But anyway, uh, for years, BJ thought that this is what happened. So let me tell the story. Okay, so she's going to college. I'm already, I've already been there two or three years. And uh, so she comes and um, she's determined not to meet some guy, even though the gal she rode with from Seattle asked if she was excited that she might meet her future husband today. The school now is in NLA. It's what's called the Master's University now. But anyway... We, we were there when it was years ago and it was much smaller, but she says, uh, but she thought, oh no, she was determined not to let that happen. It was the farthest thing from her mind. And so what happens is that uh, um, she finds out what dorm assignment she has. And then she and her friend drive up to the upper parking lot above the dormitory. And they're getting out of the car to uh, take their things to their dorm assignment. And I show up and I ask if I could help. And, uh, which I do, and, uh, they're happy for the help and she was happy for that. And, uh, we were kind of stuck together a little bit after that. And, uh, that was kind of how it happened. Well, it was 15 years into our marriage when I finally admitted to how it really happened. Because when she showed up on campus, I was actually in the registrar's office where the question was asked, well, where should these students go? And in fact, weeks before that, I'd actually seen her picture because I, uh, the registrar was a good friend of mine and happened to see the, their, her application. There was her picture. And I said, wow, this is interesting. And I noted her name. And then when the time came that she asked what her dorm assignment was, I heard the name and I, man, I started sprinting up to that parking lot going up through the weeds. And I got up there before the car got there. And, I, and then when they pulled in, I was ready to go. Um, and then of course the rest happened the way she observed. Well, in her view, it was a chance encounter and it culminated in the free will of woman. But for 15 years, I let her think that she landed me. 
But behind the scenes, there was a young man who foreknew her, who plotted and sprinted and, uh, and trotted out all the irresistible charm that he could manage in order to win a bride of his sovereign choosing. Little did she know. And you'll have to ask her if she regrets the way I changed her will and made her love me. Well, uh, I don't care if you think it was all you deciding for Jesus. Ultimately, your decision about this gorilla must come down to reading and understanding the Bible. We should remind ourselves that God will never cast aside anyone who comes to him. Oh, John six thirty seven. He who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. No man who chooses salvation and the glory of God will be denied it. But the Calvinist reminds us no one will desire this unless God turns that man's or woman's will around. We insist that no one is saved who does not choose to be saved in response to God's winning grace. Both sides agree to that. No one will be in heaven with Jesus who did not want to be with him forever. God is not throwing the switch on a machine. God is wooing us like courting a bride, a person he loves and aims to bless forever. Well, we end where George Whitfield did in his response to John Wesley. Quote, After all our reading on both sides of the question, we shall never in this life be able to search out God's decrees to perfection. No, we must humbly adore what we cannot comprehend. And with the great apostle at the end of our inquiries, cry out the words of Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Well, who can ever understand these things? Go ahead, tie yourselves in knots. Try to unscrew the inscrutable. But let us not pretend we have this all figured out. Paul sure didn't. So let's keep studying, thinking, and talking well with each other. God bless you.